Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. We weren't around last week because we recorded an episode that frankly did not meet the uh, standards we have set for ourselves, Michael, so I heroically uh, didn't release it, um, you know, thereby saving me actually quite a lot of work, but really it was for the viewers, listeners, those people who listen. Yeah, I'm, I'm, un- I'm unconvinced. I have seen no evidence. I just am informed of these things because uh, apparently I just, I, that's, that's my role in this. And uh, I have to take your word on it, rather than that you made some dreadful, horrendous faux pas and sounded like you were on some kind of hallucinogenic drug. And that's why it had to be destroyed. But we'll leave that for history. It was largely about the uh, the re-wetting uh, conversation, so highly likely to have said something inflammatory there. But Michael, I think you've taken the, the correct approach. Don't ask any questions and just do what you're told. Because if you ask questions and, you know, maybe consider what you're doing, you would be a moral agent. And that means you're culpable. Yeah, agency is, 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 is very much in at the moment, as we know from the National Council uh, on Curriculum. <laughs> but, but more of that later. So, Gary, uh, how are you? I'm, I'm good. I, uh, I am back from Prague. I'm away to Israel next week for a conference on agriculture, which I somehow got talked into supporting. Uh, so there will be no show next week. I'm uh, actually away the entire bank holiday, I think. But while we are here, Michael, we may as well make the best use of our time possible. And that is not me telling people about my holiday arrangements. Hold on, hold on. Sorry, I just want to make it clear, for th- in case anybody is listening that might should be listening and thinking he said holiday. He did not mean holiday. He's going on a research work-related trip to Jerusalem uh, talking about the relationship between Europe and Israeli agriculture. And it's a very important topic. And it is not a holiday, okay? Okay, well, I've been suitably chastised. So we may as well go on to what is the actual news of the day, unless there's anything else you want to give out to me about. No, because there's just so much news. I mean, normally we... I I wouldn't say normally. I mean, some weeks... We, we just have a certain amount of news and other weeks just really there's no, there's so much ridiculousness happening this week that is quite joyful. So yes, let's, but unfortunately there's actually quite big news as well. So we probably have to spend more time on that and not get around to many of the very, very fantastic stories that our politicians and others have given us this week. So what's the big story that's haunting the headlines? So I suppose the big, the big story I think today is likely the Red Sea poll that came out on uh, asylum seekers and also includes an opinion piece, or sorry, a, a, a polling on the uh, the parties themselves and, and likelihood of voting for them. Uh, people may have seen the headlines. I think the business it was a Business Post poll. They say Red Sea, three out of four think Ireland has taken too many refugees. But what I'd like to do, Michael, if you're amenable to it and will not give out to me if I do so, is go through the actual data in the poll because the data is actually quite interesting. And there's some things about... Uh, the language used that I think some of the questions weren't great, but the data is still quite interesting about it. Yeah, like if I give out to you that you're not just simply going to cut it out in the edit anyway. No, no, but what I might do is is I might cut out the part where I say whatever is aggravating. So you look like you're just giving out to me for no reason. And then I will basically claim to be the equivalent of a beaten housewife. I believe, I believe the I believe the young people would call that uh, gaslighting. That's a plan. I think the first interesting question to ask, and this is lots of interesting stuff going on here, that uh, the, uh, the Sunday Business Post decided to ask this question 
at all asked the question in the first place. I am going to go far uh, to speculate, Gary, that there are members of the government, indeed, members of the doll on both uh, sets of benches, if you like, who would have much preferred the business post had not asked these questions at all, especially if they're going to get these answers. Yeah, it was, it was actually because when this poll had come out, uh, Gript had just decided that we were going to commission some polling to ask these questions uh, or similar questions on the basis that it was highly unlikely any of the other media would do so. Mm-hmm. And then uh, nearly immediately after we agreed that, this poll came out. So there was sort of a, oh, well, fair enough. We don't need to spend that money then. But I, just to give a, a general just overview of what they asked, they asked kind of five questions about refugees. The first was they asked people, well, actually, they weren't really questions. They were statements and people were asked, did they agree or disagree? Uh, because that's that's cheaper, Michael. There's some little insider knowledge for you. Uh, The first thing people were asked was, I think the number of refugees Ireland is taking in is now too many. 75% agreed to that incredibly awkwardly worded statement. Yes. I can appreciate some of the anger people feel about asylum seekers being moved into their local area. Again, very awkwardly worded. 76% said yes. I would be concerned about asylum seekers being relocated to my local area. 55% said yes. The system for processing international protection applicants is too slow. 65%. I am not happy about the state's failure to provide accommodation for all asylum seekers who arrive here. 49%. So, results are very, very interesting. I will have to say this, Michael. This was a very, very badly designed uh, survey of people, a poll of people. The questions are awkwardly phrased. They use multiple different terms. So the first question asks about refugees. The second asks about asylum seekers. Fourth asks about international protection applicants. Uh, It's just kind of a mess. And also, like the last question, I'm not happy about the state's failure to provide accommodation for all asylum seekers who arrive here. 49% say yes. 41% against. We've no idea what people think they're answering there. So are you not happy because the state should do more? Or are you not happy because you don't think it's the state's place to uh, give accommodation for asylum seekers? And it's just kind of a mess. The thing as well, like I can appreciate some of the anger people feel. What does that mean? I don't don't appreciate all of it. I think it's just, but there is a, there's a, a little bit of it, or a lot of it. Uh, yeah, it's there's a strain, there's a vagueness or ambiguity to the language, which means you're standing back. You don't you can guess at what they mean on the basis of other answers, but that's not really what you want to be doing. Even stuff like I think the number of refugees Ireland is taking in is now too many. Okay, what what do people th- like? You would follow on from that. Also, you probably wouldn't say refugees. You'd say asylum seekers because you know. All refugees were asylum seekers at one point, but not all asylum seekers are refugees. So you're kind of pointing people in a particular direction. And normally I would I would not forgive it, but understand it because you want to save money. But the Business Post owns Red Sea. So why not ask the additional questions and get not just, you know, the Highline figures, but stuff that you can then actually say, okay, well, this is like when people say they appreciate some of the anger, this amount think that blocking a road is justified or this amount think you know, whatever. But they don't do that, but, and so we just have to kind of uh, work with it. Not great news for Irish political parties, however, when you start looking into the actual breakdowns of the responses. So, I mean, when the question about the number of refugees being taken is too many. Now, normally I would say using refugee instead of asylum seeker is going to lower the numbers that would agree with it. Because refugees, Michael, are, you know, they've gone through the asylum process. They are, as you would say, legitimate 
So you would suspect that these numbers would be higher if you said asylum seekers, although then there's a question of, well, does the public actually understand that distinction, given that politicians and NGOs have spent years blurring the distinction as much as possible because it's beneficial to them. But when you look at that question and the amount of people who agree that Ireland is taking too many refugees, every sex, age group, social class, region and political party that they polled on is in support of it. It agrees that Ireland is taking too many refugees. Even in the 18 to 34 demographic, which would be the most liberal demographic generally, 67% agree with the statement. Even in the ABC1 demographic, which is the uh, higher social class demographic usually, um, for those who are interested, ABC1 and then C2DE would be the way it's usually split up. Even in the higher social classes, who again tend to be more liberal, 69% agree with it. Present as more liberal, certainly. Well, yes, it depends really on the issue you're talking about and on economic affairs, uh, often not quite so. But even amongst the government parties, Fianna Fáil, 74% of Fianna Fáil voters agree we've taken too many refugees. 70% of Fine Gael uh, voters say we've taken too many refugees. And something we had been talking about, Michael, um, when we were talking about the protests that were coming up and Sinn Féin's place in them and why they had to be very, very careful what they actually said, 83% of Sinn Féin voters say the number of refugees being taken into this country is too high. Also, more women than men agree. There are two things there. First of all, the, the, the women... The numbers are so high with women is really interesting because generally speaking in these things, you confidently expect that whatever might be perceived to be the more compassionate side, that women will be more likely to be more sympathetic, empathetic or compassionate in these kinds of issues. And yet the, the women's numbers are so high. Secondly, as you say, Sinn Féin numbers. I mean, I don't know, does this ring alarm bells in wherever Sinn Féin have the HQ? I don't, where is it? Parallel Square? Are they on Parallel Square? Anyway, wherever. Um... That they really need to, that they need to start working on their game plan on this because eighty three percent. It's very hard, Gary, to imagine to think recently of any subject where you've seen numbers like this, and for uh, for a political party as with as as big a vote these days as Sinn Fein has for its for its supporters to be up around eighty three percent. That suggests. And only, purely, you know, we're a long way out from an election, I believe. Other people think we'll be there the day after tomorrow. I think we're, these guys are going to go all the way. But there is a, that if you can target those communities with the biggest Sinn Féin vote, but also maybe the highest degree of sensitivity on this particular issue, because they have been uh, the locus of the, a lot of settlement or whatever, that if you can attach Sinn Féin to this issue and you can come and look a bit like, a bit like Sinn Féin, but sound different on this issue, that there may, there may be votes to be got. Now, Sinn Féin have shown themselves capable of movement and capable of growth, that kind of People think cynical, but I think a lot of the time it's not cynical, it's organic, because they, re- they are, in a sense, reflective both of the country, but also of their members, to move on things, or to, to I don't want to say evolve, because that will make me sound like I'm being actually sarcastic. It will be interesting to see where, where they go on this, because it's a, it's going to be a tight, tight a bit of a tightrope for them. The language they use is going to be very important. I think on this, I think, you're, I think there's absolutely space in here for growth. The other interesting thing, and I think this just gives people an idea of the trend here, amongst independent voters, 88% said they agreed with that phrase. Now, the interesting thing in Ireland, I'm sure we've talked about this before, but perhaps there are new listeners, Michael, or people who have forgotten because we are very forgettable people <laughs> yeah, who indeed. say forgettable things. 
is that in Ireland, because there's no real what would be considered conservative right party for all the Fine Gael used to make those, you know, say the right things about it. And a lot of the people who went in would have seen themselves as kind of, you know, small C conservatives. Yeah. It's independents basically fill the space that you'd have a culturally conservative right wing uh, party. Basically, you can see from Fine Gael to Sinn Féin to the independents, these numbers move up in what is clearly a trend on this. So I think what we're what Sinn Féin have found is you know, they have a lot of working class nationalists in the party, the people who would have voted for Fianna Fáil when Fianna Fáil you know, dared to go into those neighbourhoods. The, the old party vote. They were never going to like this. But I think if there was a party there that had, because you have the National Party, you have the Irish Freedom Party, they are virulently against um, these sorts of things, but they haven't made those inroads with the public. And I think what you would need to, to make inroads with those public is a party that was hard on this but not extreme on this if you take my point yeah you know that could come out and say oh well we want numbers we want uh reinforcements of the Gardaí we want to reform this system we want to do these things I think you could actually see them pick up quite a lot of traction amongst uh, these voters the problem there of course is that these voters and working class voters vote less but I think there is a demographic there, particularly slightly older people, because they tend to vote more. Yeah. Can kind of counterweigh that. And a party that could do that, I, I think, would do very well. Uh, but no one seems to either be interested in it or capable of achieving it. And part of that might be the media positioning on this, because the media has been pretty much in lockstep that, you know, things are going great and they will continue to go great. And no one disagrees with this. i tell you what I think one of the most interesting aspects again we're just it involves a certain degree of sort of psychic projection here but this poll is happening at a time when it's it, it feels like to me the government parties and their friends in the media have really ratcheted up rather than move away they have ratcheted up the language of racism when it comes to people opposing uh Say uh, the opening of direct provision uh, facilities in their in their local community. Uh, when you see the language that has been used regarding the protests in Clare, and then there were the issues in Dublin, that rather than seek to maybe strike a, a balance of well, we under we they think they're wrong, but we understand concerns or whatever more conciliatory, more emollient kind of language. They seem to really they they they've they've upped they've upped the the temperature on the on on the language here. And then, even in that context, these are the numbers. And I would say that's both interesting from the point of view that people seem to be less concerned about the perception, whether it's of other people, but also of themselves. Because, you know, people will also reflect on themselves, does that make me a bad person? Does feeling this make me a racist? And the, the, the response would seem to suggest that that's just not happening. The other thing is, we have been talking, Gary, for quite some while about the potential on a number of issues, but on this one, the potential to to generate an unpleasant far-right politic in this country, which has resolutely failed to materialise, even at a period when we had incredibly rapid growth of a non-native-born population to the point where the we're the highest, the second highest in the OECD for non-native population. That happening at the same time as a financial crash, a housing crash, massive spike in, uh, on a, in massive spike in unemployment, and yet we didn't get the successful rise of a xenophobic reactionary party. I think that they are 
as we speak, in the process of creating a space for those people. And if they don't start to change the tack and their language, they're going to actually so desensitize people to certain kinds of issues and certain kinds of language that they that those groups that have up to now not been able to fill this space are going to find that there will be some fertile land. I don't know how much. I'm skeptical that there's going to be a whole lot, but I think that there is a potential there now that they that the reaction to this has been created. And I think it's interesting these figures <coughs> show that people are just simply less uh, and less likely to worry about that perception when it comes to this issue. I think it's difficult to say in part um, certain things about this because while it would seem that the far the usage of the term far right and to call people racist and, and xenophobic is at some level a delegitimization tactic to basically enable the government and academics and the NGOs to say this is not an issue we need to debate everyone decent agrees with us and the people who don't are beyond the pale and therefore we don't need to engage with this at all. I think there's absolutely an element of that. I'm curious how much of the problem is that some of the people talking about this are so blinded by their own the bubble that is around them and that forms around Leinster House largely um, that they actually think they're right and that the people who oppose this are far right. And we saw this, I mean, with some of the um, with some of the um, issues with some of the migrant camps, where NGOs and politicians and reporters seem to legitimately believe that this must be a racist attack, as opposed to the fact that people may take issue with a camp full of men they don't know just springing up on a street or in a wood near them where they have no idea what's going on and their children go through that area. So it's... It's kind of hard to tell exactly what the intent here. I think you're you're absolutely right, though. I think they, in attempting to do this and, and seemingly out of a desire to avoid any sort of far-right forming, they have created a situation where the far-right are able to say, well, we told you it was going to go this way, and it did. Yeah. And that does not seem like good governance. And I think the, the, the danger of this, of this particular time is this. Sinn Féin is broadly accepted to have been key in avoiding the development of not just a far right in Ireland, but a a populist right, because they took most of the nationalist votes that would usually serve as the core of that sort of movement. Sinn Féin have a big problem coming up, as we can see from this. They have to decide what they are, and they cannot be all things to all people, particularly if they get into government. If Sinn Féin shatters, and they can no longer draw in those votes, those votes will move elsewhere. And while they could go to, you know, a... Um, a a populist right movement, they could equally go to a hard right movement or a far right movement. And it's, there's no distinction in the political and media space at the minute between those things. If you are a populist, you are far right. If you're hard right, you are far right. And those are very different things. And it might behoove people to start thinking about which they would prefer. No, I, I, I'd say just two things on, on the race. First of all, I think one of the, one of the problems that, is, that has got us here and, and why I think that there's been a, a de- sense of de- de- legitimization of, the, of the, the government's position is because if we had simply applied the laws of the state, none of this would have, none of this would be a problem. Absolutely none of this would be a problem if we actually obeyed our own rules. And that's a problem always. And I don't mean in this particular issue, I mean generally speaking. If there's a perception that rules are not being followed for any group of people, that will lead to resentment. But the rules regarding the acts coming into the the about who can come and co- come into the country, how they come, how they get here. We actually have some of the most restrictive laws 
in the Western world when it comes to getting into this country. We're also, frankly, we don't have that many people coming into the country because we are where we are. It's, we're hard to get into. You can't fly into here directly, except from, generally speaking, other wealthy countries. So there's a, the fact that the, there's, it feels like for a very long time, and then the, the, the long, I mean, God, Gary, how long have we been talking about direct provision? And the problems of direct provision. It, it feels like at more than a decade. And I think it is easily more than a decade. But the thing for Sinn Féin, I think the question here is, uh, is going to be, and this is something we won't know until either somebody, we won't get any sense until somebody gets does some other polling about this, but maybe more detailed polling, and or we get hit an election. Is, is this going to be a bit like people giving out about the health service or the the cost of houses or the cost of rents but while it's something that everybody agrees that it's a terrible thing when it comes to actually voting it isn't the thing that they vote about or is it in fact going to be one of the things that motivates people very immediately on their decision of who to vote for we that we don't know i i mean my view on that would be in normal circumstances, it would be effectively the health service. People disagree with it, but not the primary thing you vote on. I think, however, largely due to the way the government is handling this, it runs the risk of actually becoming something that people vote on. I think there is a real risk there for one reason, if, if not, that they, this is not going to go away. It's not going to do anything except get worse. Because while I said the, one of the reasons that it's, it's happening are the, is that the rules have not been applied. The other reason is because in a completely separate area, shall we say, they have, there's been a massive failure of government regarding the construction of houses in this country because of government policies and interventions and other things. We don't have enough houses in the country and that's we and they have because of also things they have done the dreadful interventions in the rental market we have a crisis in rent that has created uh, an amplification for this problem which i don't think that would have other existed I put it do you think that we would have the same level of intensity of feeling about this if there wasn't if it wasn't happening at the same time as people uh, uh, on feeling like they're living through uh, a crisis housing and rental crisis. No, I, I don't think so. And it's, it's something you see in other countries as well. Countries that are rapidly expanding, that have very, very good economies, can absorb migrants much, much more easily because basically there's, there's more of those things. There's more housing, there's more um, transport systems are being redeveloped all the time. You saw that in Ireland during the Celtic Tiger. Massive influx of migrants. Yeah, but very, very little actual uh, social upheaval because of it. And I think partially that was because of, of the nationality of those migrants with a lot of kind of Polish and things like that who integrated quite well. But once you start running into, into limits, resource limits, that's when people actually start getting um, concerned. And I think the other thing here, Michael, is the fact that direct provision is so shambolic. It seems from... A grip has done a lot of work on this. It seems quite clear that the vast majority of asylum seekers into this country are economic migrants. Yes. Now, that's not to say, it can't, you know, to put any sort of uh, moral spin on that. 
No, no. You can think what you think about economic migrants, but they are people who are trying to access the country improperly because we have made basically a very high wall that's very difficult to get through if you don't meet certain criteria and then basically dug a massive hole under part of it. And now we seem shocked that people are going the easier way about it. I think that's tying into this problem. If the asylum process was tighter, if there was less of an opinion that this is basically a scam, yes, I think people would be substantially less concerned about asylum seekers being moved into their area because they would feel it's far more likely that those asylum seekers are legitimate. Absolutely. And I think also it is kind of odd that at a time, if we consider that we are technically at the moment beyond full employment, as odd as that sounds. We are we are at super employment levels at the moment, super saturation if we were a solution, I suppose. In this context, having other people coming in uh, as essentially economic migrants would not be an issue. I mean, it's not like we you know, would have a situation where people, they're coming in and stealing our jobs. In fact, oh, thank God someone's coming in to do the jobs that we can't get other people to do. The problem is that there is a perception, first of all, like you say, that they are gaming the system, which is combined with a sense that they are placing demands on a resource which is in scarce supply in an otherwise booming economy. Now, I throw into that, Gary, that famous promise by dear Roderick, whenever it was, was it a year ago or so, when he promised everybody their own front door key. Now, that just seems like, in retrospect, to be a really, really stupid thing to do. First of all, because he can't guarantee all these people will get a front door key. Absolutely can't. But also, lots of other Irish people, lots of Irish people listening to that and thinking, well, ah, oh, hold on, hold on. I don't, I don't get a front door key. How come the fuck these people get a front door key when I have a very strong sense that they're gaming the system? Well, that, that is the other thing, yes. And you mentioned fairness either earlier, Michael. And this, I think the problem that you there is that people don't feel this is fair. They don't feel it is fair that asylum seekers can get certain things so quickly, given that the system for Irish people is so unholy shambolic. And that creates a real problem. But you talked about Roderick O'Gorman. There's been an attempt in the last while by, I think, particularly Fine Gael to blame the Greens for this entire thing and basically say the Greens did this. We had we had no part in it. Yeah, yeah. But Helen McEntee's amnesty that we were told would have would not in any way pull more uh, asylum seekers into the country. And I I think at the time, Michael, I had said that, of course it would. (laughs) It's ridiculous to say it wouldn't. If you are allowing people to normalize after being illegally in the country, once you've done it once, you raise the specter that it'll happen again. And you were saying that not many people come to Ireland as asylum seekers, and, and you're right. But we've seen the numbers increase dramatically. And there has not been, I think, a full explanation of the government's part in that. And part of it is Roderick, absolutely. But part of it is also McEntee and Fine Gael and the government as a whole. I think we also may need to make a further distinction here and a further qualification of the context in which this is happening. It's also happening in the context of the war in Ukraine. And we have received a very large number, relatively speaking, of, 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 of uh, refugees from the war in Ukraine. And I think that we need to, again, understand that there are many, many people who might have issues around the asylum system and around the centres and all that. But 
on the other hand, are perhaps far more likely to be sympathetic to the idea of accepting uh, refugees from the war in Ukraine because they look at that and they say, well, and I'm not saying all of them, but this, um, this is my impression from talking to people, that they're going, well, actually, there is actually a real war in the Ukraine and there is a lot of shit happening there and they're bombing and blowing up stuff and people are getting killed and that is absolutely definitely happening. And yeah, we can, we should be bringing people in. But that... If we're talking also about simply the supply and demand issue, but the amount of supply that has been taken over because of the the unpredicted, and shall we say unpredictable, uh, advent of many tens of thousands of people fleeing a war in the east of Europe has again amplified and exacerbated the problem. So, you know, if, if, we, if, we, had ta- if we took the war in Ukraine out of it again, and my sense is, that an awful lot of this stuff just wouldn't be happening. But it is happening. But I would also... But when we talk about refugees and asylum seekers, I think that there's also a sense that the, that category is uh, a separate category. Even though I've seen people, shall we say, uh, on the political right, trying, use, trying to get into the... Oh, well, the Ukrainians are getting this, and the Ukrainians are getting that, and isn't that a very bad thing? And that may be, I don't know, that may be getting some traction. It may be getting uh, some positive responses in some communities. My sense from the people that I talk to, is even the people who are worried or skeptical about the system generally, are pretty supportive of the idea of providing asylum for people leaving Ukraine. Well, I think that goes to, to what we were saying there about fairness. There seems to be a general public perception that it is a good thing to take in refugees from Ukraine due to the war. Yeah. And people can see the war. They can go online. There are videos. You know, there's news about it. People believe that the war is there and therefore is there is a legitimate reason for those people to seek asylum. So I think that's you wouldn't see general public against that, although the government have endangered that by basically saying there will be no cap on this. Because it is clearly a good thing to tell people they can come here safely when we cannot you know, put them up and uh, actually house them. Yes. But, you know, that's the Irish government approach. But it is, it's, it's, it's become a shit show. And it didn't need to be a shit show. But what it does show is that, is the actual harm that inept politics can have. Because we, there's so many things in Ireland that are kept from breaking, but don't work effectively and have not worked effectively for many, many years. And the problem you then find is when something goes wrong and you try and add an additional thing to it because you've convinced yourself that this is the moral thing to do, you try and do it, and it turns out, actually, we don't have the capacity to do this, but it would be politically harmful to accept that we don't have the capacity to do this because of our own actions, and so we're just going to keep doing it. And then, lo and behold, people start to notice shit's breaking. And the fairness thing is really important because I think that it has kind of become a theme or a meme or a whatever, a leitmotif of the left in the last number of years to look at certain populations and just automatically say, okay, yeah, that's just racist. That's just bitter clingers that we don't need to really engage with them. When, for example, the 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 Trump phenomenon. We all would we we could all just comfortably say, oh they oh, they're all just a bunch of racists, and they're all just high in oxycotton or whatever. <clears throat> but we know from fairly I mean very extensive uh, exit polling and post polling 
that this big issue for many of the Trump voters, particularly in the in those sort of Rust Belt areas, was a sense of fairness. When the, when you looked at the responses and also these people were not in any they, these were not Klansmen, these were not racist people, but they were deeply concerned about issues around fairness. Again, in uh, a lot of the stuff that was happening in say in the red the breaking the red wall, the Tory success in the northeast when you interviewed there were cultural issues certainly but again a sense of fairness big issue and if you have if you could combine two things one a sense that people are not listening to you people don't care what you think and you ha- already have a sense that the stuff going on which isn't fair that's a really bad combo for uh, institutional politics people who think that the system the system is is gamed it's unfair, but it's also it's gamed against them, and nobody's listening to them because nobody gives a fuck about them because they've dismissed them already. They consider them not important, and then they look at other people who they consider to be important. This is really bad. And <coughs> back back from the back in um, what's it? Did Schopenhauer talk about it? I don't know. Say Nietzsche. This is the great Nietzschean to me insight in the terrible corrosive effect that resentment has both personally but also on the body politic and the and society and that's what they're doing they're they're going to breed resentment they're they're breeding resentment and very very bad idea that is why i think this could become a voting issue because once people actually start to resent things resent is resentment is an incredibly powerful emotion resentment is behind some of the worst things that have ever happened in the world some of the best, actually, as well, but usually the good outcomes are kind of a um, side effect. But yeah, you get people, you get people who who start to feel that way. Yes, they'll vote in it purely to fuck you. In many cases, um, on the 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 second question, Michael can appreciate the anger felt about asylum seekers being moved into local areas. Again, not a single demographic has less. Then, I think what sixty eight percent agreement with that statistic, and the sixty eight percent is in the eighteen to thirty four. You start looking into the other demographics, you start getting like seventy, eighty percent agreement. It is not good for the government. So the the number of refugees being taken is too many. Seventy five percent agreed with that. Seventy six percent agreed that they can appreciate the anger felt about this. And in most demographics, more people appreciate the anger than feel that the number of refugees being taken is too much. Now, the numbers are quite similar because, frankly, the numbers are so one-sided. But you have people who think that Ireland has has not taken in too many refugees who clearly feel that they can appreciate the anger felt. Now, again, I would love to know what the fuck that actually means. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> what are pe- what do people think they're saying when they say that? Because this is actually something I wanted to, to mention. There have been reports about um, some of the, the migrant camps being broken up. And one thing that's been repeated a lot is that tents were burned in one of them. Now, I've seen the videos of that, um, of that place being burned. And my understanding is that before the fires were started, the people had left under, I believe, Garda Escort, although I'm not sure about that and had taken the tents and their most important belongings. Although activists are saying the guards moved them and said they could go back and then didn't let them go back. 
But anyway, the, some things are still up in the air. But what we can see clearly on the video is that no tents were burned because no tents were there. Now, it's been repeatedly said in the media, and I believe it was mentioned in the Business Post write-up of this poll, just because it's being repeated so often, but the video does not show it. But it's being repeated because very few people want to be the person who stands up and says, actually, no, there was only, you know, no tents were burned. It was only some other stuff. Because then there's, you know, there's a question of, well, why are you so interested yeah, in this? Why are you saying that? Why are you defending these people? No, it's not true. And it's being presented to the public as if it was true. And it's only a minor thing. But I think indicative of the general shall we say, approach to this amongst the media. No one really wants to question it because then you will appear to be racist. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so the public are being told things that are not true because it is basically socially easier to say them. And on that tone, Michael, do you know what we could have uh, for the next episode? We can talk about this uh, new law on drink spiking and we can talk about the research on uh, people being spiked on a night out and what that shows. That's an episode that'll make some friends. Oh, God. Has spiking come back? The government have announced that they're going to introduce a standalone uh, uh, crime. of uh, Sorry, a standalone offence, as they would say, uh, of, of drink spiking. So, yeah. If that's fine, I think if they're doing that as standalone, I think that we also need to look at witchcraft, Gary. I think we need, to, we need, we need some legislation against witchcraft. And I'm hearing a lot of babies being abducted and sacrificed and uh, black masses. As a really weird aside, but kind of when you said witchcraft, there's a group of people who complain um, about uh, pro-life protests outside abortions and prayer vigils and all that sort of thing. And they're pushing for, for those things to be made illegal. And I couldn't quite get why they were so involved with it when I first started. But when I started looking into this, people, it actually became clear to me that the reason that they don't want prayers, um, prayer vigils outside hospitals and places where abortions are, are carried out is that these people deeply believe in the power of prayer, that all of the people involved were deeply involved in sort of Wicca and that sort of spirituality. So legitimately witchcraft. And it seemed likely that they actually wanted to stop the prayer vigils because they thought that the prayer vigils might have some sort of spiritual effect. And it is a bizarre scenario, which I never thought I would run into. But there you go. There, there is actually an influence of witchcraft in that particular area, which is just... That's like, fantastic. I, as as long-time listeners would know, I am not a, I'm not a man of religious faith. Or, well, spiritual faith, at least. But uh, it was just really weird to see. That is brilliant. They're... Th they're worried that basically these people down in Limerick are casting a spell out there. They're sending their their they're sending their cosmic energy, their mother energy out. There. That is brilliant. I love that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and you go into it, and there's all this stuff about particular. It's 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 pretty out there, but it's it's very interesting and not something. It's the kind of thing you always you just kind of don't think still around. But then I suppose, I mean, people are very influenced by their religious faith into why they do certain things. So why wouldn't people who are involved in witchcraft and things like that also be very motivated by it? Wicca's been a big part of that sort of left, lefty, feminist, lesbian, spiritual, philosophical scene. It's always been for a while now, certainly. It's, uh, 60s, 70s? Weekend. What, what, uh, God, what's the name? Lilith. Isn't it Lilith? Isn't Lilith? 
Now, Lilith is a figure in, 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 in certain traditions. Well, I mean, also, obviously, a figure in Judeo-Christian, but... Because we will be coming back, I'm sure, more than once to the the issue around um, refugees and asylum seekers and direct provision and all that. I'll, I'll put a link to the actual, not the report on the poll, but the actual full breakdown of the poll below this episode. There are just, uh, there are just a few things I just want to advert to very quickly. Um, just in passing, uh, there's two stories and then we'll finish up with the toddlers because we have to. We have to talk about the toddlers, Gary. I'm sorry because it's just too beautiful. Just there's one one story that caught my eye, which I thought that it has kind of gone underneath the radar. And we've heard a lot in the context of the war in Ukraine and the 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 obvious failures of the of the Russian army and indeed and the problems the Russian economy is facing with who knows one million two million young people leaving already a country with a bad demographics loss of life huge amounts of treasure lost seems to be whatever whoever wins this war in Ukraine the Russians have lost it even if the Ukrainians don't win it the I think that the Russians have already lost this war and they, they lost this war at time. But it's not saying, well, you know, in this, we are looking, we have absolutely shifted into a multipolar world and the Chinese are just fantastic. And there is a certain element of a certain kind of person, Gary. You, and they've, I have been aware of this for a very long time that they look at the Chinese thing and they think, yeah, the Chinese have it. The Chinese have worked out. They don't have any of this nonsense about real democracy and proper free market capital. They have enough of, they have, they have centralized the power and they have directed capitalism and God, it's fantastic. And look at it. That's really what works. Because there's a certain kind of leftist, Gary, that that kind of authoritarian concentration of power just gives them the, the warm and fuzzy feeling. I have been one of that little group of people saying for a long time about China. Oh, I think China's not good. Because basically religious belief about how economics work, I think that China has done very well because of Chinese people doing very well. But the government has had very little to do with it. And ultimately now Xi has come in and Xi is concentrating the whole thing. One thing you tend to get in economies which are booming, booming and doing really well and going forward and strong, you tend to have strong labor demand. Particularly in a country like China, which doesn't really have you know, a whole lot of immigrant migration. And especially with the bright young people, right? The unemployment rate of Chinese between the ages of 16 and 24 last April rose to 24%. That's youth unemployment. Sorry? It's not great. Usually if you have massive levels of youth unemployment, you have uh, structural problems. Exactly. There, And there are all sorts... There's, I just we won't talk a whole lot about them because we we maybe get somebody on sometime in the future who is expert in these things. But I think it's worth just to be aware of, you know, because there's a world outside our own. While overall unemployment is uh, is quite low, and I will say, by the way, in this context, all of these numbers are numbers we get from the Chinese government, and therefore should be taken with very large pinches of the very finest Maldron salt. But 20, over 20% youth unemployment tends to be indicative of a some kind of a structural problem. Now, other people have been talking for a very long time about the Chinese housing market. 
and people like me have been saying the Chinese housing market and the property market is going to crash. And it, the crash, like all these things, it comes, it, it's coming, it's coming, but never arrives. Now, there are those who actually say that, in fact, the crash has come, but it's just happening in a weird Chinese slow motion effect. But there's something that has been, something that's happened this year, earlier this year, which I thought, oh, that's interesting. That, again, we're talking canaries and coal mines problem. Some banks in the cities of Nanning, Hangzhou, Ningo and Beijing have extended the upper limit on mortgages to between 80 and 95 years old. So people aged 70 can now take out loans with maturities of between 10 and 25 years. Or indeed, if you're 85, you can take out a loan with a maturity of 10 years. But you can have mortgage with upper age, upper age limit of a mortgage of 95, Gary. I would, um, I'd quite like to see the actuarial life table that was used to, uh, you know, argue for that to be allowed. Yes, that is. But do you not think that that's, that's also possibly indicative of a housing market and, shall we say, or more specifically a mortgage market? And we know from our experience in Ireland that, that housing markets and mortgage markets can very often become in, intimately connected and very often property markets only can go forward, keep going forward, because the banks keep uh, supplying the finance, and they, so they have to keep getting the mortgages out. And this feels like people desperately looking for people to get a mortgage out to. No, I mean, we've, we've, seen, we've seen what the Chinese government will do if property prices are, are threatened, and it looks like people who invested in property are, are going to lose. And, and that is they will direct the economy to basically fix that problem. Yes. It's hard to tell what, what's happening in China. As, as you said, Michael, the numbers don't really mean anything. Um, the Chinese government is going to say whatever they want the numbers to be, and the numbers will be those things. What I have suspected for a long time is happening in, in China is they have avoided uh, the, the standard cycle of boom and bust, the standard, you know, bull bear market scenario, by basically any time it looked like there was going to be a fall off, directing the economy into that area and basically stopping the, the fall off from happening. And then what you need to do is you need to, over time, basically regularize what you've done. Yes. <clears throat> so that it, it doesn't fall. And I would suspect at this time that, the Chinese economy is so tied together and so heavily used to stop certain areas from falling that if one of them goes, the entire thing will collapse and in a spectacular fashion, unless they have managed to carry out that normalization process. I don't think they have, because I don't think they've tried. And the other thing, Gary, is remember, we were talking with Xi. You're talking about a guy who is actually, it, it looks like, a pretty, well, he's a pretty convinced doctrinaire Maoist Marxist. So all the stuff that we and I might, you and I might believe of just being axiomatically true about the way that econ econ economies work, he doesn't necessarily believe that. So he's just, the Chinese are just going to get stuff wrong. The other thing is, for example, the IMF, uh, their data shows that China's explicit, no, there's a word, explicit local government debt has nearly doubled over five years to around $5.14 trillion. And I'm doing that in the manner of Austin Powers, bad guy. What's his name? Anyway, him. 
by my that it's five point one four trillion dollars. And this does not include other categories of related and rapidly growing debt, such as local government financing vehicles, which have allowed regional authorities to tap bank loans for infrastructure programs. Now, you also look at the fact that Chinese in uh, in Chinese private debt is 276% of GDP. And the government external debt is going up all the time. One of the other problems, Gary, they may have when it comes to directing, because of the success of the economy and massive increase in revenues and just the strength of growth, they've been able to do things. But now, one of the things they've been at recently, because they've been accruing debt and accruing a debt and accruing a debt. And they may be also getting to the point where there's just so much debt around and also massive exposure to US Treasury bills. So I'm just saying, yeah, there's a, there's, there's, for all those people out there who think that China has somehow with this found the secret spell with this wonderful form of authoritarian social capitalism. And you know what? The Chinese are all very happy and all prosperous and it's all going to be great. Yeah. Also, their demographics are looking horrible. And there's a really interesting article written in, I think it was the Wall Street Journal. I was reading what it said, that, there's a, that there are a number of China people, experts now who say that there's a real risk that China may be caught in the middle income trap. In, in other words, that they may get old before they get rich. That it looks like there's already 100 million that, uh, from the figures that the Chinese government put out that actually never existed. And that the, the consequences of the one-child policy uh, are actually are coming down the road hard and fast and, in fact, quicker than people had anticipated and may arrive before. There is actually an interesting argument that the consequences of the one-child policy will be partially blunted uh, by the likelihood that, uh, particularly in rural areas, people just lied about how many children they were having. And just didn't tell the Communist Party? Well, that was, I think that was a kind of a sanguine belief for a long time, that the people thought, actually the numbers are wrong. I'm not sure if that's going to happen on simply on the basis that when people were saying the numbers were wrong, it looks like the numbers were wrong, but the numbers were wrong in the wrong direction. And it's interesting, you mentioned about Chinese rural areas. And one of the things that people, again, don't get, there's a really interesting discussion about this, um, with Stephen Kotkin, you know the the, the Russian experts, who uh, he's also he he he's interested in China, and he's saying that China is very much a, is a divided economy. You have that economy which exists in Beijing, and then on that coast, particularly in the south and the east coast. But he said in the interior, you have eight hundred million people who never finished primary school, and who are living in very serious poverty very low levels of infrastructure, very low levels of, uh, of economic infrastructure, social infrastructure. And that there are two words, and that uh, there are problems with the education system and, and other issues we have. That, uh, but anyway, you know, I'm just doing that as a, as a way to say, you know what, it may turn out, it may turn out, Gary, that liberal democracy and free market capitalism is actually still the best way to get people and to keep people in a comfortable position, as long as you don't let the Green Party get in and decide on your policies 
for example, deciding that if you if this is a good one, Gary. Yeah, I, under the Clare, the Clare County Development Plan, twenty twenty three, farmers with thirty acres or less of land will have to demonstrate an economic need before being granted planning permission to build a house on their land. From now on, they will have to live in nearby towns or villages and travel back and forth to the farm. Well, that is the government policy, Michael, that uh, we've got to centralise towns and areas, stop runaway development in rural areas in order to increase the efficiency of service provision and uh, cut down on, I'm sure there's some sort of climate change thing there as well. There always is. But, sorry, Gary, just stopping stopping runaway development in rural areas, is that code for let's kill all the villages and the communities in the country because it, it seems to me that if you're if you if you okay picture the scene gary you are aware i believe quite well aware of the problems of building a house in an area where you're not actually you can't produce documentation showing you've lived on the same plot of land for the last seven generations that you, you serve mass in the parish every Sunday morning and you play football and your children play football and your wife plays camogie for all of the local, uh, for the local club and make the tea. And the, the, the restrictions on building in rural areas are fairly spectacular. I mean, even the, the basic ones, even if you are from there, but if you're, then the, the requirements for local residency that are, we have discussed before, illegal, are still very strong. If you don't have people living in a parish, but they are living three miles away or five miles away in a town because they have to, and their children, therefore, will go to not the school there, but they go, what will happen to the school if there are no children? Don't, don't those schools close? What happens to the local pub and, and shop if there's nobody living in the area, but they're simply coming and going? And then what happens to a place which used to have a shop and a pub and and a school, and it doesn't anymore. How attractive a place of that is that, in fact, for anybody to want to live in the first place? Isn't this effectively just a clever, or indeed not so clever and not so subtle plan to shut down the country? We don't want people living out there, Gary. We want it nice and empty. And then we can bring the wolves back. Because we want the wolves, Gary. It sounds, Michael, like what you're saying is that even if an idea can be good on the face of it in relation to, let's say, service provision costs and moving towards a more kind of French-style town system, it can be a bad idea if you implement it without considering the fact that we haven't developed the country in that system and there's lots of stuff that depends on alternative systems and that you may, in fact, Michael, (laughs) deeply fuck rural areas if you don't think about that before you implement it, it, near, it, it sounds like that's what you're saying. Gary, I have actually heard people reference the French system. I have heard people seriously, with serious faces, reference the French system. Have, have you been in rural France lately or have you read anything about the health and vigour of rural France? Well, I don't think you've read much about the health and vigour because it, it's absolutely... Rural France is empty. Rural France, like rural Italy, is full of. It, it has towns in it where there, where you can buy a seventeenth-century three-story, charming stone house in the middle of the town for a euro, or indeed they're places where they'll they'll pay you to go there. I mean, no, rural France has not been a big success, Gary. Not not recently. 
So I'm not sure. I mean, in the past it may have worked. And you know what? We had a, a kind of a, a, a village-centred agricultural system in the Middle Ages, Gary. <clears throat> but it turns out it's not the Middle Ages anymore. Uh, so I think we, I think we need to move on from the no, the French model. No, the French model is a lovely model. It's a very nice model, much like the Renault Four. And as much as we all liked the Renault Four, we wouldn't choose the Renault Four right now. It turns out there are better models available. Finally, Gary, I want you to fin. I want you to give the people a treat because uh, I think they we all, they deserve a treat. I want you to tell them about the lovely report uh, commissioned by the NCCA, a consultation with babies, toddlers and young children. I want you to tell them about it. I want, first of all, Gary, I want you to promise them solemnly that you're not making this up. Because when I read this first and, and I, I, I brought your attention to it, I, honest to God, would not have believed it was true except the, per- the person who told me that it existed. Yes. So what this is, is is it's a document that was tendered for by the NCCA, who are the curriculum organization in Ireland. It is therefore paid for by the state. And it is described as a innovative piece of research that is attempting to inform the updating of the early childhood curriculum framework. It is innovative because rather than just talking to young children, they have also decided to talk to babies and Toddlers. Because, Gary, if I'm not wrong, babies, toddlers and young children are stakeholders. They are stakeholders. And the report says this, commissioning a consultation with babies, toddlers and young people to enable their participation in the review of a national policy is a highly innovative approach by the NCCA. Children of all ages, from birth onwards, have the right to participate in decision making, to express their views in all matters affecting them and to have those views considered and given due weight. <laughs> Unfortunately, Michael, internationally we have yet to emerge from the marginalisation of young children, particularly non-verbal children, from consultation and research, and there remains a gap in understanding that children express their views and voices through indirect means such as play. Okay. I am going to be perfectly honest here. I have read this paper. It is 250 pages long. (laughs) I find it difficult to critique this paper because I don't rightfully have any idea what is being done here i mean i've looked through their methodology i've i've gone through it i just don't know why this is a piece of research so far in social theory that to someone like me who's coming from should we say michael a more quantitative direction and uh you know believes in things like facts and yeah that's all that, that's all very well to be like that but but they did find out certain things for example gary i believe we got a result when you asked the children about play so children play positive or negative gary our children were very supportive on play and on the fact that play should be strongly considered in the updated curriculum well that's very very strongly so you heard it here first folks in a piece of research commissioned, uh, tendered for by the NCCA, with 30 researchers involved, 30 researchers involved, children... I, I believe it was com- actually 35. 35, sorry. Children have come out in favour of play. So all that stuff you've been hearing in the mainstream media about children being soft on play, 
lukewarm about play, modern children against play. It's all lies. It's all mainstream. But we have a piece of research, which I'm sure cost, I mean, 35 researchers, Gary, this had to cost hundreds of thousands. I, I, I think this probably cost quite a, quite a large amount of money. Also, Michael, these people are so soft. It just astounds me that they can get out of bed. Like here's a section where they're talking about ethical um, approval because you're working with children, you need ethical approval. Of course. And they say one non-negotiable requirement of the formal ethical approval provided was that no children's faces could be visible in any data that were published. This has left the research team in the deeply uncomfortable position of obscuring the faces of the children in the photographs shared in the data analysis section. And this is apparently an example of the tensions involved in, in this. And Perfectly reasonable to blur out the faces of, of subjects who are below age, but to describe it as a deeply uncomfortable position, I kind of feel like, you know, when Oppenheimer started saying things about how he had become death and you know, yes, blah, 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 yes, blah, yes. where your immediate response is, you know, well, you know, maybe harden up there, sunshine. <laughs> well, to be fair, Oppenheimer had discovered a tech, or a, 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 not a technology, but a modus that would possibly lead to the destruction of all human life. Oh, oh, did the man who built a bomb feel sad that the bomb blew up? Oh. On the other hand, these are... these are Maybe don't work on the bomb <laughs> if you don't want to kill people. And if you do, you know, deal with it. Deal with your shit, Oppenheimer. I think there's a qualitative uh, difference, and Gary, to be honest with you, that, and worrying about blurring babies' faces. Um, there are concerns, of course, Gary, about the relationship between teachers and researchers, which, of course, that you know, is worrying. Now, I, Michael, I would just say this, because, you know, they, they did all this work, and um, they said that it, they didn't have any traveller children, which I thought was weird, so I went looking at their actual, their, their, their methodology, because this involved a, a, like, somewhere in the region of, I think, about 100 children. And Here's the interesting thing. We do not make any claim to have provided a statistically representative sample, but rather the sampling strategy enabled the research team to select ECEC settings that would support the NCCA's requirement to represent diversity in the sample. This is a strength of a qualitative research design where the child sample is not required to be representative of the child. Did you say qualitative or equalitative? Uh, Qualitative, but we'll get to that. Okay. This is a strength of qualitative research design where the child sample is not required to be representative of the child population as a whole. In developing the sampling approach for this project, we aimed for equity rather than just equality. So this entire piece of research, which involved analysing children's drawings to see if they were actually happy with the educational framework in which they were sitting. Toddlers, Michael. Non-verbal toddlers, who I wouldn't have thought were very good at art. No. So they were allowed to draw, and then their drawings were analysed by this team of 35 people (laughs) to see if they supported the NCCA's educational framework. It it is a worry. Sorry, Gary, I just wanted to make the point just to the the listeners who might be concerned, because I am concerned that this has been done. And they didn't include any traveller children, they didn't have any Roma children. And even though they say they tried very hard, they didn't have any same-sex children or children of same-sex relationships, you know? So, I mean, Gary, let's face it. That's, that's uh, how, how really, how much equity is really going on here? I, I, how many languages were spoken? 
So there were a bizarre amount of languages spoken, uh, 18 different languages, 23 children with additional needs, which I assume is what most people would consider special needs, 10 children living in consistent poverty, and three children experiencing homelessness. This is with a team of, sorry, there are only 32 people involved in this, Michael, 23 educators and 11 co-researcher educators. There's a fantastic part of it where they talk about how they had considered training the educators to be better able to do their job and then decided not to do that because that would not be equitable and would undervalue the experience of the educators. So, like, these people are so fucking far into social justice. that just like, no, we can't train our collectors because to do so would, would be symbolic of a power imbalance. Absolutely. Training, Gary, training is fascism. You know that. But here's... Here's the great thing. There was a particular role, Michael, in this survey, a very important role. Yes. It was key to their work. Mm-hmm. And would you like to know what that role was? Um, I don't know. Mummy? No, 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 no. It was an educator who had the expertise to take on the highly skilled role of interpreter of the hundred languages of children. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, that's brilliant. There's an actual researcher who's interpreting, in, and I, I'm not being... A, <laughs> sorry. Not being actually fluent. Not, this is goo gaga kind of... <laughs> oh, Michael, the idea of the hundred languages of children is very important to this report because they're trying to analyse... <laughs> children who don't speak so they need to have a lot on oh well there's a lot of you know non-verbal communication Gary. because if there wasn't this entire thing would be bullshit and we're highly educated people so we would never like do something that was bullshit so clearly there is you know something here is it children that won't speak or children who can't speak can't speak is one thing won't speak maybe these are children who are using their silence as a source of their power and they're saying no until tibet is free I will not speak. Yeah, I think that. The but there's some there's some, there's some great lines in this because they also they basically had toddlers play together and then took photographs of them and analysed those photographs to see how that reacted upon the NCCA's framework for these children and what they came to decide, Michael, was that relationships are of utmost importance to babies. Really, babies, Michael. Uh, yeah, and and from that, Michael, they said that any any framework going forward has to focus more on children's friendships so that educators can understand what a, and this is a direct quote, slow relational nurturing pedagogy looks like and to empower educators to implement it. And again, this, Michael, Michael, this report yes. is 250 pages long. Do you know what? I, you see, in a weird kind of way, a lot of this is familiar to me. A very, very, very long time ago, I did a, a dissertation on the pedagogy of the oppressed by Paulo Freire. One of the most tedious books. The only thing that was interesting about it was the influence of Heidegger, which nobody talked about. But anyway, that's an inside joke there. But um, all of this stuff, it's, 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 it's all this pernicious nonsense. And it all goes back to Paulo Freire. And they, I don't know they still do, but they certainly used to do. That was one central text that the H. Stephen, absolute nonsense. It's fantastic. But I would. The only reason I think we should listen to this at all is I would remind the listener out there that you paid for this. Somebody in the middle of the night came in to your house and 
found your wallet or your purse or your your Apple Pay or whatever it was, and they put their hand into your pocket and they took money out and they went away and they paid people. They paid people to sit down and interpret the hundred languages of children. They paid them with your money. And I just want you to think about that when you go to sleep at night. These people are taking money out of your pocket to pay for people to interpret the hundred languages of children. I um, I just want to give you a, a, one of the... the the headings, Michael, of a section in this because I think you'll like it. Go on. It's in a section called The Voice of Babies and Toddlers. And the headline is Children and Their Lives in Early Childhood. Uniqueness, Equality, Diversity, Children as Citizens. Children. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> but here's, here's the other thing. It then goes on to ask a question. But they phrase the questions from the perspective of toddlers. So the question says, as a baby or toddler... How are my unique strengths, interests, needs, abilities, and experiences supported through ESTIR, which is the um, which is the framework that the NCC have? But it then goes on to individually examine how children played together. But here, so here's one: the documentation of this play captures Robbie's interpretation of observations as he uses a calculator as a mobile phone. Jay, hi. How are you, Jay? Roof on, blocks on, no, no floor. Shouts the toddler into an old calculator held in his ear being used as a mobile phone. This demonstrates how Robbie is making sense of the world around him through the people in his life and his everyday life experiences with his home. Wow. Another example of how children value space and time was found in the data from... Yeah, and it goes on and it goes on. And Anyway, Gary, I think that what you need to do is put a link underneath uh, uh, the, the cast there so that people can go and read it for themselves. Because it is really worthwhile. There's tons of this shit in here. Uh, yes, I, I, I will link into it. And you too can read about how a baby showed she was all business carrying the can to the flowers outside, yet looked back to check if an educator was following her. And that showed something about something. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, you, you, you're going to be in Jerusalem working uh, next week, I think, are you? Yes, yes. And, and you're going to be working somewhere else the week after that, are you? I can't remember. Probably. This is the this is the conference season for people who don't know. And so You're going to be in Jerusalem will, twice um, this year, aren't you? Twice or three times, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I'm spending about two and a half weeks over there. And I'm not going to be in Jerusalem at all. Just I think we should also reflect on that. Anyway. So we will be back when we're back. So just keep checking in to see if we're home. Uh, until whenever we're home and if it's uh, next year, next year in Jerusalem, uh, have a great bank holiday and enjoy a lovely weekend. And we will talk to you soon. All the best.